When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Lisa Gain is our feature Ohio musical artist tonight. So hang out with us to the end of the podcast. We'll tell you all about her and her band and let you listen to that entire song. But right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Acker Beacon Journal. Hi, everyone. Steve, do you ever get tired of seeing blimps in the skies over Akron? I brought this up with my boys. I was like, see those blimps up there? We see them all the time, but we're lucky. We live in a city where you see the blimps up there all the time. Uh, Yeah, you know, when I worked downtown, there were summers I saw the blimp a couple of times a week, and I never took them for granted. It was always a treat. I would always pause and look up, if only for a moment. For those who might not know a little history here, Akron is the international headquarters for Goodyear, makers of the famed Goodyear blimp fleet. Now, from 1929 until 1960, the company built both Zeppelins and blimps in its humongous Goodyear air dock, which, if you live in Akron, you simply call the hangar. The hangar was once the largest building in the world not to have interior supports. Steve, have you ever heard that the hangar is so big that it rains inside? Yes, and that's kind of gross because it's probably raining some body (laughs) stench. Body stench. Think about all the people in there who who cause the humidity walking around and they're working there. No, there's no body stench. This thing is like the size of seven football fields. There's no... It's not like that. When it's raining, what is it? What what is what do you think it is? That mystery I could solve for you. Okay. The building is so big that it it does kind of create its own environment. When the humidity is really high, a sudden change in the temperature will cause condensation up on the ceiling and the ceiling will fall like a mist, kind of creating the illusion of rain. Now, Today, the original historic hangar is owned by Lockheed Martin. I'm not really sure what they do in there anymore. But modern Goodyear blimps are built and stored a few miles away in a big but much smaller air dock next to Wingfoot Lake in Suffield Township. You see that old hangar? A single Zeppelin would fill that thing end to end. But blimps are way smaller. If the Zeppelin was a 747, the blimp would be a crop duster. Goodyear just didn't need that much space anymore. Well, tonight, our story is about one of the blimps that was built in that original hangar and how it figures in an incredible mystery that historians have come to call the ghost blimp. This story takes place in 1942. Only nine months earlier, Japan bombed the naval fleet of the United States in Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, which of course led to the U.S. entering World War II. 
And in the months after that, Japanese submarines had managed to sink at least half a dozen Allied ships right off America's west coast. And here's something you may not know. A Japanese sub even attacked California's largest oil drilling facility that February. You know, we tend to think of World War II as taking place in Europe and the Pacific. Most people don't realize the American mainland had been attacked. It was the first for aggression on mainland soil since the War of 1812. So that explains why these blimps were so important to our defense. Blimps made in Akron were purchased by the U.S. Navy to patrol the West Coast seas looking for those subs. On the early Sunday morning of August 16, 1942, a blimp that the Navy called simply L-8 was preparing to do just that. It was based on Treasure Island in San Francisco Bay, and on this day, it carried two 325-pound depth bombs, a 30 caliber machine gun, and 300 rounds of ammunition. And climbing into the gondola of the L-8 on this day was a two-man crew, Lieutenant Ernest DeWitt Cody and Ensign Charles Ellis Adams. There was almost a third crew member. Machinist mate James Riley Hill was supposed to be on board, but the cool fog of the summer morning had caused the fabric of the blimp's covering to become inundated with excess moisture, adding additional weight to the aircraft. So the Navy responded by scratching Hill from the crew to save weight. Cody was an experienced pilot and a 1938 graduate of the United States Naval Academy at Annapolis. He was from Mayville, Michigan, and he and his wife Helen had moved to California five months earlier. Cody was known for being naturally calm under pressure, but he was still a young 27 years old, and some say he had grown a mustache in an effort to appear older than his years. Cody was new to flying airships. He had only started after the attack on Pearl Harbor, but he had become the senior aviator of Airship Patrol Squadron 32. One of the reasons he had recently been promoted to lieutenant second grade was because of a notable achievement in that L-8 blimp. In April that year, the USS Hornet was out in the Pacific carrying a fleet of B-25 bombers that were getting ready to make a raid over Tokyo, Japan. If you know your World War II history, this was the famed Doolittle's Raid. But those bombers needed some spare parts. So Cody was sent in the blimp to meet them, and he had to lower the spare parts onto the aircraft carrier while it bobbed in the ocean. He was commended for demonstrating so much skill in holding that blimp steady, since it's a vehicle that can easily be buffeted by the wind. Now, Cody had 756 hours of flying blimps, but that was a fraction of the experience of his number two man. The second guy on the blimp that day was Ensign Charles Ellis Adams. He was a Pennsylvania native, also married to a Helen. Adams was 11 years older than Cody and had 2,300 hours of airship flight under his belt. He had been piloting airships for 20 years, long before the war had started. 
And that included being at the controls of the Goodyear blimps, the Akron, the Macon, and the Los Angeles. And he even played a heroic role in the world's most famous airship disaster. In 1937, Adams was living and working in Lakehurst, New Jersey, when the German passenger Zeppelin, the Hindenburg, caught fire while attempting to land, killing 35 people. Adams helped rescue the survivors and was decorated by the German government for his efforts. Though Adams was older and more experienced, he was junior to Cody because Adams had just been commissioned an officer the day before this August 16th flight. Talk about timing. Now, the flight plan this day called for the men to fly a 50-mile radius out from San Francisco, first west to the Farallon Islands, then north to Point Reyes, then south to Monterey Beach, and then returning to Treasure Island. It would take no more than four hours. The boys were leaving at 6 a.m., so they expected to be back by 10 a.m. or so. As for the L-8, as I said, it had been built in Akron by Goodyear and was part of the company's advertising fleet until the Navy purchased it and based it in California at Moffett Field. The blimp was 150 feet long, very similar to the ones you see flying today, and it had a great record. It had flown more than a thousand times and never needed more than the usual maintenance. It was even inspected four days prior to this departure. At 6.03 a.m., L-8 lifted off from Treasure Island with Cody at the controls. The day was a little overcast, but visibility was still a good three to five miles as Cody piloted the blimp over the Golden Gate Bridge toward Farallon Island, 30 miles away. A little more than an hour and a half later, Cody and Adams, they were about four miles from their destination when they radioed in. Cody said he was investigating a suspicious oil slick and to stand by. Now, an oil slick in the middle of the ocean is obviously something out of place. It could mean an enemy sub was lurking below the surface. There were two ships watching what happened next. The L-8 dropped two float lights, basically smoke-producing flares, into the water. When the cargo ship, the Albert Gallatin, spotted the flares, the captain sounded a general alarm, and the crew rushed to man the ship's guns. Meanwhile, sailors from a fishing trawler called Daisy Gray thought the flares meant the blimp was getting ready to drop depth charges on an enemy sub, so they quickly pulled in their nets. The Daisy Gray later reported they were close enough to the blimp that they could see the two men in the gondola. But no bombs were dropped. Instead, the blimp circled the area for more than an hour, and the crews of the Gallatin and the Daisy Gray watched curiously through binoculars. At one point, the blimp descended to just 30 feet above the waves, as if the crew wanted a really close look at something. Then, shortly after 9 a.m., the blimp rose back into the air and turned for San Francisco. Back on land, radio control was trying to find out what was going on. They hadn't heard from Cody and Adams since they had reported that oil slick at 7.42 a.m., 
and they weren't responding to any calls. They didn't panic. Sometimes blimps did lose contact during a patrol. But after a full hour of not hearing from them, two Kingfisher float planes were sent out to have a look, and other aircraft in the area were asked to be on the lookout. At 10.49 a.m., the blimp was spotted. A Pan American Clipper pilot saw it approaching the Golden Gate Bridge, seemingly well under control, and headed back to base. The next person to sight the blimp was an Army P-38 pilot. The blimp was near Mile Rock, and again, nothing looked amiss. It was still on trajectory for Treasure Island. But a few moments after that, another witness saw something strange. Richard Quam, an off-duty seaman who was heading for a day at the beach, was driving along the coastal highway between San Mateo and San Francisco when he spotted the late in the distance and saw that it appeared bent in the middle. He snapped a photograph of it. At 11.15 a.m., this is now five hours after the blimp had lifted off, a sunbather at Ocean Beach in San Francisco saw the blimp, now hanging 50 feet above the water. Its motors were silent, and its bag was sagging noticeably. The blimp touched down briefly on the beach, then moved inland until its gondola slammed into the side of a hill. The impact bent the propellers and packed the engine with dirt and leaves, but the blow also knocked a 325-pound depth charge loose. The charge rolled down a hill and came to a stop, and the loss of that ballast allowed the blimp to rise again. It cleared the embankment and disappeared from sight, and the shore patrol of San Francisco called the Navy at Moffett Field to let them know their blimp had accidentally just dropped a depth charge on the beach. Now, here's where some people swear they saw the crew inside, though these sightings you'll see later seem unlikely. They were Sunday morning golfers at San Francisco's exclusive Olympic Club, and they paused to watch the blimp limping by. That's where one club member swore he saw a parachute descend from the blimp. There was also a 17-year-old in the area. His name was C.E. Taylor, who reported he looked at the blimp through binoculars and thought he could see figures inside the cabin. Well, the blimp continued to float along. Some people were now giving it chase, including local police, area residents, and members of the Daly City Fire Department who stopped their chore of burning brush on a nearby hill to follow along. The airship finally descended in Daly City. That was a suburb just south of San Francisco. It bounced off the roofs of several homes and finally hit a utility pole, which caused L8's tail to swing into some electrical wires, causing a shower of sparks and puncturing the blimp's envelope. The deflated blimp finally came to rest atop the freshly waxed car of Richard Johnston on Bellevue Avenue. It was 11.30 a.m. Good Samaritans in the area rushed to the gondola to help the crew out since those electrical wires had been sparking. But the cabin was empty. 
the door of the gondola was latched open and a microphone attached to the loudspeaker system that the blimp used to communicate with surface ships was dangling outside the door. Firemen arrived and surrounded the blimp. They slashed its envelope. They were trying desperately to find the men who obviously had to be trapped in it or under it. But nobody was there. More discoveries made this mystery even more puzzling. The blimp was sent back to Akron so Goodyear could investigate, and they found everything in perfect working order. The radio, the engine, all the instruments and flight controls. The only thing found was that the handle of the hatch was perhaps too loose, too easily moved. All three of the blimp's parachutes were on board, along with its single life raft. A briefcase of classified material was found behind the pilot's seat. Two of three life jackets were missing, but regulations required the crew to wear them when patrolling over the water, so it wasn't surprising those two jackets disappeared with the men. And there was still plenty of fuel on board. In other words, there was nothing whatsoever wrong with L-8, except that it was missing its crew. Of course, an extensive search was done. Air raid wardens and highway patrol spent days combing the area the blimp had traveled. For three days, Navy ships, planes, and the Coast Guard searched the Pacific. There were calm seas and good visibility, but no sign of the men. Both men were married. Their wives soon received word that their husbands were officially listed as missing. The Navy interviewed 35 witnesses, but in the end, had no answers. Certainly, there was no indication the airship had been attacked. They closed the incident and marked the case as 100% undeterminable. Of course, that didn't stop others from speculating. When all was said and done, the simplest explanation experts could venture was this, that perhaps while investigating the oil slick, one man fell overboard. The remaining man released two flares, then lowered the ship toward the water to recover him. That would also explain why both engines were stopped if that pilot was attempting to slow the airship. And it could explain why the microphone to the loudspeaker was dangling outside the door. Maybe the man inside was using it to communicate with the man overboard before he ultimately also fell from the craft. But we will never know. L-8 was repaired and resumed duty as a training vessel for the Navy. When the war ended, the blimp was returned to Akron, and Goodyear refurbished the cabin and renamed the airship America. It was used to televise national sporting events from 1969 until it was retired in 1982. In 2003, Goodyear donated the cabin to the National Aviation Museum in Pensacola, Florida, where it was renovated to look as it did in August of 1942 and put on display. A year after Cody and Adams went missing, they were legally declared dead, and the Navy closed the book on the incident. By the way, the Gallatin, the cargo ship that watched the blimp as it investigated the oil slick, 
Ironically, a year and a half later, it would be sailing those same waters when a Japanese submarine found it and sunk it. Steve, your wife, Erin, gave us this story. She reminded us of it. I had heard it before. I had really not put all those Akron connections together. So tell Aaron thank you for us. <laughs> I will. That's a fantastic story. That's something you would think would happen in the Bermuda Triangle. Oh, totally. It's totally a Bermuda Triangle story. <laughs> all right. Well, that's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. Hello, this is Gary Chachot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.